Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. Welcome back, everyone. And we've got another new year ahead of us, the year 2022 and 23 of the academic year. And we have got some great episodes to share with you once again. Some fantastic, inspiring guests who've been recommended by other inspirational educators uh, to share what they think is important and they are passionate about in this world of primary education. Please do share the podcast. Please do review it. Uh, it'd be really helpful if you could just leave a review. It takes a couple of minutes on your podcasting platform, uh, a rating as well. And it'd be great uh, to share this podcast out further to get uh, more and more listeners to share what they think about uh, this world of primary education that we are all in. So let's get started without further ado. This week, uh, we have Danielle Jarmin, um, who was recommended to us by Matt Young on Twitter. Uh, and it's great to ha- it was great to have Danielle on the podcast uh, today. Uh, she has worked in a number of year groups from year one to year six, all of them, in fact, except for year four. So a very wide range of experience in the eight years of teaching that she's been in. And along that way, she's been an RE lead, a computing lead, a curriculum lead, and is now the English lead uh, in her school and has a great passion for that area. Uh, So lots of fantastic things that Danielle had to share with us from from her experience so far in her time in education. So let's sit back, relax and enjoy the episode with Danielle Jarmin. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Danielle Jarmin. How are you doing today, Danielle? Hello, I'm good, thank you. Tired, but enjoying the summer holidays. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Looking forward to a good summer and, well, started off with a fantastic chat with yourself about all things primary education. So once again, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. Let's start with your quick fire questions, uh, as we usually do. First of all, Danielle, what is your Twitter handle? Um, My Twitter handle is at Pastel Teacher. Excellent. And how many years have you been in primary education? Um... So I am going into my eighth year. That's a long time, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Well, hopefully many more years to come as well. Uh, But that's that's brilliant. Uh, And in those eight years or so, what's been your primary journey so far, Danielle? Okay, so I trained in year six and year three. Um, So then in my I've been in the same school since my NQT year, which is a great school, lovely village school um, in Leicestershire. Um, I started in year three. I did three years in year three, and then I moved to Key Stage One, which I didn't. I didn't want to go to Key Stage One, but I knew it would be a good experience. So I went to year two for three years. Loved it. Um, absolutely loved year two. I, I, I think it's my favourite year so far. And then I went to year one um, last year. Just dipped my toes in the water a little bit there, and I was only there for a year. And then this year, I'm actually moving to year six, so going from one end of the school to the other end, um, and I will be teaching. So I'll have year six as my class, but I'll also be teaching year five English as well, um, because I'm leading English now. So in our school, we have um, a specialist English lead and a specialist maths lead. So they teach five and six maths, and then I'll be teaching the five and six English. So a nice change. Absolutely. That sounds great. And actually looking at the list you just gave me, it's just year four now, then you'll have done right from year one to year six, which is incredible. That's brilliant. Definitely. Um, And I probably won't ever teach foundation, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah. Who knows? Like you say, never say never. (laughs) No. Um, In terms of, in terms of the extra responsibilities, I've always been, I've always led RE. So RE has always been something I've absolutely loved leading. It's one of the hardest subjects, I think, because there's so much, oh, there's just so much in there. But it is quite nice, and it's always nice to support members of staff because it is kind of the that and music's probably where people feel the least confident, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done that for seven years now, and I've also led computing. Um, but did that for a few years and then um we had a specialist come in because we were became a part of the edtech demonstrator program so i worked alongside them but i took a step back from kind of so we were quite scared we were going to get ofsted and i didn't want to be a part of too much of that um and then i've also done a whole curriculum lead 
at my school for two years um, when we were looking at changing um, how we were teaching the wider curriculum. And then now I have got English lead. So yeah, but I've not started that yet. That's in September. So I'm just kind of looking at the documents at the moment. So I'm really excited about that. It's That's where my passion is, but I've kind of jumped in lots of hoops and lots of areas to get there. So absolutely well I like you say it sounds like you've been very busy over these last seven, seven years <laughs> it's because I'm in a small school so there's ah. you know there's not as many members of staff there's quite well sometimes there's lots of opportunities in small schools but other times there isn't is there it kind of depends on what's already established there but yeah I've been a long time um teacher at my school so yeah oh, that's fantastic well what is your favorite subject and why Danielle um, so I think it's hard actually because I love maths. I love teaching. I, I, I love maths because I struggled at um, secondary school in maths myself. So it's kind of something that I was quite passionate about making sure that everybody could achieve. Um, so when I first came into teaching, actually maths mastery was quite a big thing. So that was something I was passionate about and implementing in my school. So making sure everyone was actually achieving the same outcome um, with the same task, but in a, in kind of a different way with scaffolds and things. So it was really nice. That's an area I was passionate about maths, but ultimately my favorite is English. I love teaching English. I love teaching writing and reading. Um, so yeah, English is my favorite subject, but I love maths a lot and I will miss it this year actually. Mm. And what is it about English you like so much? My favorite thing about teaching English is being able to create that final piece of writing at the end. Um, I love, I just love seeing what children can create just based on things that you've taught them. And I think that's really nice. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Uh, and if you had to, or if you already do, what after school club would you run, Danielle? So um, I was thinking about this um, because Jane, you can you remember Jane Clapp, she was talking about having a social club, mm. which I think is quite nice. But um, I used to do a social media club. So mm. it was when it was way before COVID. So before Seesaw was used for um, online learning, basically. But I used it as a social media club. So we, uh, it, we had to do lunchtime clubs. So they had to be during lunchtime. So there was never long enough to get your teeth stuck into something. But I taught them how to use Seesaw and they would go home and they would read a book or do some homework and they would record themselves and kind of, it was like a mini vlog. So that's what I did, but that's on a small scale. If we had the resources, I would love to do like, I would love to do podcasts with the children, YouTube channels and um, kind of like mini newspaper articles. So like a social media club, but on like a bigger scale, that's something I would love to do. I don't know how easy it is to execute. We have been talking about getting equipment for little bits like that at our school because we were um, we had a whole room um, in the school kitted out with ed tech stuff, um, but it was never kind of the resources that I wanted. So that would be something I'd love to do. That that does sound actually really interesting, and obviously, like you say, in today in the twenty first century, creating content like podcasts and YouTube yeah. videos and things like that, it's just it's really you know a huge area right now, and kids absolutely love it. My my daughter wants to be a teacher you, or a YouTuber. Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's it's interesting how it is becoming you know so so prevalent today, and so like you say, giving the children the opportunity to do that in school in in a club would be fantastic. I love that idea. Yeah, um, we started equip, equipping the room with it's it's called a it's not actually a green room it's a blue room so it's essentially the same but um, we have taught them how to make videos and change the backdrops and things like that but it's not it's not quite as cool as what we want it to be yet. Well, no, you never know. One day, along with curriculum leading, <laughs> English leading, all the things you're doing. <laughs> along with all that stuff yeah absolutely great well let's uh, go into to our main focus questions today then uh, with you danielle so first of all what inspired you to become involved in primary education in the first place so originally i wanted to be a police officer um when i was at secondary school so i worked towards that i kind of um got my good grades did all that and then 
in second um in college we had to do a placement in fact no it wasn't it was in secondary school I went to a college for a placement and then I also went to a primary school which was my old primary school and um I worked in year six with the teacher Claire Sylvester and I went in thinking I'm just getting some experience I think it was four weeks work experience we had to do this work experience and the kind of couldn't really go to um, a police station and work alongside those. Um, so I went in, wasn't very open about the prospect of being a teacher, but I absolutely adored it. And I worked with her and Heather O'Connor, who was in her NQT year. So Claire Sylvester was there when I was teaching and then Heather was there during um, the training. Um, and I loved it. Heather was great. I loved how she was in year five. I loved how she unpicked misconceptions and then the children at the end of the lesson loved it and they got it. And I was a bit like, whoa, it was when I was at school, I felt like nobody understood what the teacher was talking about. We had blackboards and it wasn't even that long ago. So I was just in awe. And then working with Claire Sylvester, she was it was no nonsense. It was get on with the work, do this, do that. And the children achieved so like so much and I loved it so I went away thinking oh what do I do like do I continue with what I want and then realistically I thought I'm I'm really small I don't know if I don't know if you know but I'm like four foot ten so everyone on Twitter mocks me for my height which is fine it's fine I'm okay with that um I'm sure the year sixes will this year um and then I thought do I want to be a police officer or do I want to try and you know maybe go into teaching and I did and I went back to school after um, I got my degree and saw Claire and Heather, Heather O'Connor, who was an NQT when at the time, she's now a head teacher in a huge primary school back uh, where I come from in the north. <laughs> so uh, it's just, I love it. And I love that there's teachers that are all different and they all achieve, achieve great things. And I just, it inspired me so much. And I loved, I love that I just went back to my old primary school and it, made me change my mind mm. no, i love that and it's great to hear just kind of the inspiration that other teachers can give us to see just the great role it is i mean yeah there's days and times where there's difficult things we've got to work with and there's hard days yeah. there's really there's really tough days but actually Definitely. seeing people in that environment and learning from them and seeing just the impacts that they have with the children it, it can change your life as, as it has with you yeah. yeah no definitely and it's strange isn't it because you don't I I just went in thinking oh I'll just do this work experience you know get my little signature at the end mm. and I just loved it I loved every minute of it mm. oh well it's certainly a different environment than a police officer as well so uh you know it's <laughs> I don't know who I was kidding I'm scared of the dark I hate <laughs> big crowds of people I just yeah I don't know what made me want to do that in the first place but I just had this I just wanted to do it and then I'm so glad I didn't though mm. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, you know, in primary education, it's a great environment. Lots of great things happen. And sometimes along the way, there's some stories that take place, which, you know, we just we just remember because they're just so funny with the kids or with staff or whoever. What's the funny story that you can share from your time in primary education, Danielle? Oh, um, well, I've got I don't think they're probably not funny to you, but or to anyone else listening, but. <laughs> When I'm in my NQT year, I had um, this little girl brought in a Tupperware tub of dragonflies. It was it was actually one dragonfly. It ended up being dragonflies. I've kind of given the story away here, but this one child brought in a Tupperware box of a dragonfly, and he was dead, wasn't alive. So I was like, oh okay, uh, put it on the top of my bookshelf. Um, forgot about it. The next day, because somebody else had seen I'd got this. <laughs> Uh, dragonfly brought it in she brought her own in in a tupperware by the end of the week i ended up with four four dragonflies because i just didn't have time to show this dragonfly that they'd all brought in and then so we opened the dragonflies to show everybody and they smell horrifically i don't know if you've ever smelt a dead dragonfly but it was horrendous. And I had four children stood here with this graveyard of <laughs> dragonflies. And it was just so funny because I didn't know what to do. There was like a pungent smell and they were just like, yeah, here's my dragonfly. And basically we just had to praise them for bringing in 
all of these dragonflies. So that's my funny story. <laughs> when you mentioned that there was more dragonflies in there, I thought we were going down an avenue of having, you know, two dragonflies in there, and suddenly there was more dragonflies by the end of the week. Multiplying. No. No, <laughs> no it was just dead ones. They weren't alive, and they smelled, honestly, the smell was horrendous. Like, I would never have known that dead dragonflies smelled so bad. And I still have kind of PTSD whenever I see a dragonfly flying past me because I'm just so terrified of the smell. Yeah, I have to say, you asked the question, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever smelled dead dragonflies. I can honestly say I haven't. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, not, not that I'm going to ask you to kind of try and describe it, but I'm just wondering, you know. It's a very, it's a very fishy smell. <laughs> like, a bit like tuna, but gone off and stale. It's not nice. You just put me off tuna there as well. That's great. <laughs> That's uh yeah. If we could have in the future, you know, podcast like four D podcasts with smell and and that yeah. kind of thing, you know, that would just get that across. That's lovely. <laughs> but I can just picture you at the front there with these kids trying to really excite the children. With, oh, they've got yeah. these dead oh, dragonflies. They, they, uh, spark because they're quite sparkly as well, aren't they? So you do yeah. kind of put on a show, and but yeah, they smell horrific. Hated it. Lovely. <laughs> That'll teach me for not showing the show and tell on a Monday and leaving it till Friday, won't it? That's true. <laughs> that's you know, We learn many things on Prime Education Voices, and that's one takeaway we can get from this, is uh, yeah. show off the, the, dead, the dead bugs before the end of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That's great. Uh, let's go on to your primary three. And for any new listeners, of course, this uh, the primary three are three things about primary education that is really important to the guest. It can be top tips, philosophies, resources, absolutely anything that you if they are asked what are three of the most important things to know about in primary education uh, or to focus on these are the three for you so danielle you've sent me yours uh, thank you for sending me yours ahead of time we're going to start off with talking about classroom environment uh, and so you've just mentioned we're in the summer holidays and you've just been in the, the classroom yourself getting your class uh, prepared for the new year so why is classroom environment so important to you so so I've kind of put it into different sections. So I've got, I've put in the organization of the classroom and I've got kind of like a theme. So like the color, I mean, I'm pastel teacher. So my classroom is pastel, like it's pastel colored. It's all pastel colored and it has been since day one. And I stand by it being the best approach. <laughs> um, and then I've written something about working walls because I wasn't going to talk about working walls, but I have seen lots of people actually already this summer talking about it. I don't know if you have. Mm. Um, I mean, some people um, don't use them, which is fine because there's there's people in my school who don't use it the same way I do or probably don't see it as beneficial as I do. But I do think working walls has a huge place in the classroom. I think as long as you do it with the children, and I know we're, we're, we all have so much stuff to do and so little time that it's hard to kind of do it on the go. But if you build it with the children, and I and um, I remember talking to my, she's year two now, but my colleague who I worked with, I was in year two while she was in year one. And she always said that working walls don't work in year one and she said it's just really hard the children are learning to read and I thought I don't I don't think that's true but then last year when I was in year one it didn't work as well mm. as year two but they do refer to it the more like towards the end of the year they've they've got it ingrained in them actually I can look here and I can become more independent if I'm using what my teacher and we have created so it does work in year one it is harder I will say that but I do think working walls if they are done with the children and they're done in a way that is beneficial for the children so there is very collaborative I think they do have a really good place in the classroom I might be the only one <laughs> I might be the only one that thinks that but it does work for me especially for vocabulary as well I found it's really good for spelling and using things in the right context, the right, just everything. I just found words and vocabulary definitely work up there. Mm -hmm. Sentence stems, starters, all of that, they all work. Um, I'm referring to English at the moment, but maths is definitely 
very similar anyway if you've got lots of examples on the board the children are more more likely to um, refer to them and I think as my English changes for each topic whereas my maths kind of I just add more to it um, rather than take bits down if that makes sense yeah absolutely so, no go on yeah working walls that's one subheading I think working walls definitely have a place in the classroom if they're used with the children and not kind of at the end which then it wouldn't be a working wall but I think that's where some people struggle a little bit mm. or some people just don't find them effective I do like washing lines um but again they have to be created the ch with the children yeah absolutely Let, as we're talking about working walls let's dig a bit deeper into that area because I think there's a lot of good discussion there that you've just kind of brought up there with those yeah. things so obviously you mentioned English and maths. Uh, I mean, with maths from, from my side as a maths lead, I, I wasn't using working walls until a couple of years ago or so. And I saw some examples um, on Twitter and I thought, oh, that looks quite interesting. And I liked the way that, um, and I started off doing it probably the wrong way, which is what you're describing there, which was yeah. writing up some examples by myself in the morning at 7.45, yeah. putting some vocab in there and then the kids not really looking at it. Now yeah. it's a bit more focused in the sense that during the lesson, rather than writing an example on the whiteboard, then rubbing that off, I'll write it on the working wall and we'll kind yeah, of use yeah. that together and then leave that up there for them to refer to. So I think, like you say, with maths and English, there's a lot of potential there um, with vocab and context um, needing to do it with the children and sentence stems as well. You mentioned as well. I mean, you mentioned that it has been uh, on being discussed on Twitter, and it is right now. I've noticed that too. Mm -hmm. In terms of you know, your, and in the ways that you've seen working walls work, what are some other suggestions that you would have for teachers who, um, I mean, with working walls, we're talking about what? What do you mean by a working wall? I suppose is the first question. So what I have on my working wall is I have the key learning outcome. So what we want the children to achieve at the end. So I'm referring to English at the moment. So at the end of the unit, so it might be to write a diary entry or to write a non-chronological report. And then you would have, you would have a lesson where you discuss the features. And I did this a lot with year two and you wouldn't believe what children know in year two, it's, it's crazy. Whereas year one, I had to put the work in to teach them what those skills are and what features are needed in each text. So you work with the children, you come up with them, and it might be messy, it might not be, you know, it might not be beautiful, which lots of us do want a beautiful classroom, but you put it up there, and then if you want to, after school, you can, you know, rewrite your handwriting. The children won't notice anyway, but you can still keep referring to it because you've got this list that you did with the children. And then as the unit goes on, you collect vocabulary, you might, um, collect pictures of children who have you know on whiteboards written a word so then they've they've got that in their mind that snapshot oh so and so came up with that word I'm going to try and use that um, or you might have a, sm a small snippet from the text that has got the word in you highlight it with the children on a whole class reading lesson that would be a part of it stick it on your working wall and then you would have, and what's really sad, once you get to the end of a unit, is that's when it starts to look beautiful and you've got that model text at the end and then you're like, oh, well, I've got to change that on Monday. So then you take it all off. But on the, on the Friday, when you've done a final piece of writing, you've edited, you put it up there, you've got essentially a, a kind of learning journey of what they've done. And throughout that topic or that um, genre that you're doing, they'll pick and choose the bits that they want. And year one, it was so amazing seeing. So I taught the children, we used, um, it was the little wooden robot and the log princess, I think. And we had, and I did 16 lessons on it. So that lasted a long time. Um, and there was quite a few reading lessons in there, but there was lots of vocabulary we collected. And at the end of year one, I had the children using things like intricate and delicate and they were, I can't remember some of the other words, but they were referring back to it. And we kind of kept making connections because it was up there for so long. They even referred to it in things um, in our wider curriculum, like, oh, oh, this is delicate. That's kind of similar to intricate. It means kind of something similar. And I'm like, yeah, it does. And they point to it. And I'm like, can you spell it? Can you sound it out to me? And because it's there, they're looking at it and they can spell it out to you. And I just think that's 
how I use my working wall and that's how I would recommend people use it and I know it's hard because you don't have time but constantly referring back to that working wall pointing at it I mean classrooms are quite hard because they're all in different they've all got different boards in different places so you can't always it's not as easy to point to or access but making sure that the ones that you want access to the most are in a place for children to see that's what I would recommend for a working wall yeah no and it's, and it's important you make the point there about you know how some classrooms don't lend themselves very well uh, to, to that setup because I'm fortunate our maths wall, our maths working wall for example you've got the front of the classroom you've got the interactive yeah. screen you've got a whiteboard next to it on the other side of it is the maths working wall brilliant that's perfect yeah. so you can constantly refer to it whereas you know some classes that's not the case but I think no. what you mentioned there is really important is that if, if you're using a working wall it's part of the learning journey and the children yeah see that molding together up on the wall whereas if you're putting the, the information up and the and the, and the and the key knowledge up yourself then you kind of got to direct them to it and of course if a class is well trained to doing that then of course that works well too but i think what you're saying here is that doing it as a working wall helps it to be part of that learning journey and part of what they've put together rather than just you doing the work and giving that information but it's them using the information, applying it and seeing it put together into this big picture of what they want to try and do by the end. Yeah. Uh, someone who does do beautiful working walls is Sophie Merrill. Um, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, she has done a, an episode on here, but she her working walls are beautiful. They don't look like working walls. They look like pieces of art. And that's probably because she's hugely passionate about art. But... It, they just look beautiful that if mine are messy <laughs> I'm hoping this year because I've got older children it'll be a, a bit easier and I can make it more beautiful but if anyone was to look at a working wall example an English working wall definitely look at Sophie's they're beautiful brilliant just a few more minutes on classroom environment because I think there's a lot of really good discussion here you let's go back through kind of the things you referred to so color so you mentioned that you liked the use that you like the use of pastel colors and things like that what what role do you think color has in in setting the right classroom environment for your class well I think it helps create a calm environment an environment that's not I feel in it, when I'm teaching if the classroom's messy I can't cope I can't I can't understand how children learn when it's messy and I feel like colour, bright colours, especially not colours. I mean, this is just a personal preference, but it, I think I've got a little bit of OCD and if it doesn't match and doesn't look calm, then I can't concentrate and children surely can't concentrate. You want children to come in to a classroom that's not overbearing, it's not distracting, you don't want too much on the wall. There's so much research about how a calming classroom promotes children working well basically mm -hmm. um and it I don't know I just feel like it's something that I'm quite passionate about having a calm atmosphere that you know helps children with their attention span you know their concentration their hyperactivity that kind of stuff I think and it's not just my preference you know it doesn't have to be pastel colors I've seen you know everyone seems to be doing the you know the mocha colors with the black borders and the ivy and stuff I mean I've gone for ivy but that does nothing to the children's learning at all it's just aesthetically pleasing but the nice muted colors that's not the primary colors so red yellow those kind of colors and blue um I think they do have quite an important role in the classroom it helps keep the children calm it's kind of nice and calming and relaxing really Absolutely. And of course, you mentioned there about the need for, for tidiness and things to be well organised. And that was one of the first yeah. things you mentioned is the organisation of the classroom. Um, yeah. You've kind of referred to the importance of that. What what uh, suggestions or ways would you encourage teachers to try and work the, the organisation in their classroom to make sure that learning can be maximised in those settings? So I think, and I know it's hard, but I do think having your stuff not everywhere. So my head teacher is obsessed with clutter he he does not like it and I think he has rubbed off on me and I think you know it's really hard to keep your classroom tidy I'm not saying um I'm the tidiest person because I'm not my 
my TAs will probably disagree with me. However, if you've got a cupboard, no one no one needs to see inside that cupboard, do they? Whereas your desk, um, our school's got kind of these marble sides, which we have our visualizers on and our laptops. And lots of teachers tend to put stuff on there, whereas I have mine completely clear. And I think coming into the classroom, it just looks inviting. It looks calm. It looks relaxing. Open the curtains in the cupboard, chaos. But it doesn't matter because that doesn't affect the children's learning. You can't see that. And I just think, you know, having things in a place, the um, lots of people have been talking about what to have in the middle of the tables at the moment you know pencil pots is always something that we talk about every summer because it's quite hard to get that right isn't it yeah like it, if the tables are messy they're not going to learn they're just going to spend ages looking for a glue stick or a glue stick lid or a pencil or whatever um, and I think if you get that right the organization of that knowing where whiteboards go and pens go I think that definitely plays an impact on how your day can function quite smoothly really yeah couldn't agree more and i think i've seen that in you know the various i I think i've gone through all sorts of different (laughs) formats and setups and uh, operations to get children to have the right equipment at the right time and know where it is uh and i I think that there's no perfect way because if there was then we'd all be doing it of course yeah we'd all be doing it yeah uh, but like you say, it's finding the way you want to do it. And from September, yeah. and obviously uh, this this episode is planning to go out on the first week of September, on the 5th of September. So, you know, this is a yeah. good time now for teachers to not obviously it's a bit late now if, in terms of organizing yeah. it and getting it ready, but setting the stall out with the children and saying, you know, our resources we need to look after, we need to put in the right place and making sure yeah. the system is in place to make sure that that is done. So that, uh, like you say, when they need to get a pencil, they need to get a whiteboard, they know exactly where to get it. And I think this is, you know, it's a very simple thing, this, but it can save minutes in, in a lesson, which can then save hours over a week. Yeah, over, yeah, exactly, over time. And, you know, if there's stuff everywhere, it is sensory overload. You've got children who will have those additional needs that will probably need an area that's not messy they'll want to come into a classroom and know that things are organized and yeah no I definitely I mean it's not easy is it to keep your classroom tidy when you've got 30 children running around and dropping pens and pencils everywhere but I do think a classroom environment plays a huge role you know in educating children absolutely and that's great thank you Okay, let's go on to the second of your primary three, which is all about picture books. Uh, Picture books is a great thing that we've talked about on the Primary Education Voices podcast before, and I can't wait to get your views, Danielle, and some of the insights on what you love about picture books. And obviously, English lead uh, this year as well. So uh, what for you makes picture books an important part of primary education? So, um, well, I'm absolutely obsessed with buying picture books, so it's probably it's probably to fuel my own addiction for them, but there's so many books out there that cover lots of different, you know, abstract things like mental health. And it's just a nice way to weave it into the classroom. Um, But I've always loved basing my writing around picture books, really. Um, From my first year, I've used picture books as a stimulus. And I think lots of people shy away from them and I think still even now even though there's such a huge emphasis on them especially Twitter um but then Twitter's not a huge percentage of teachers actually in the classrooms is it really we kind of think that there's a huge amount of teachers out there on Twitter but there actually is quite a low percentage really so I think lots of people just kind of assume they're a bit babyish and I hate saying that because they're not but I think lots of especially key stage two and I'm I'm not it's not a blanket you know thing over every teacher but I think lots of key stage two teachers do find them I think they they're scared of using them because I think that they're not it's not a novel it's not a huge piece of text that they can unpick but there is so much you can uncover in a picture book not only that, but they are beautiful, especially, you know, there's so many that are all over Twitter. Simon Smith's constantly, you know, promoting beautiful picture books, which isn't great for my bank balance, but yeah, there's just so many, they're beautiful and you can get so much 
out of them, the language that's used, and you can explore it more because it's in a smaller context. So children can understand it more. And, you know, maybe I am speaking from a key stage one background where I've explored things and they've used them. But this year I'm going to, I'm making it my goal to use it in year six and kind of, you know, like kind of share that with everybody else how actually I mean I know there's lots of teachers that do use it with year six but how you can use the same book in year two and year six and get vastly different you know writing from it and that's what that's my goal this year is to try and kind of show that showcase that at my school it's interesting that and what, what what i've done in a previous setting i say i i didn't do this it was our english lead that that, that led this in, in a previous school uh but we had a take one book week and i know obviously many classes do this but we did this across the whole school with the same book oh really yeah so That's what nice. we did what we did was we took about i think the first one we did was leon and the place between but there's been a couple of books oh. we've used over the years um and we as a school had to use that book that picture book and focus two weeks of learning on it or maybe three weeks i can't remember but basically a piece of writing i think it depended on the year group as well how long you studied it i think the the year, yeah. older year group studied it for a bit longer and produced a longer piece of writing and that kind of thing but basically to use one book and then at the end of the year with the displays outside the classrooms we then had those pieces of writing displayed across the school which you could see that progression and of course the the, the themes and the, the the writing genres were different so we didn't all do a narrative or that kind of thing yeah. but the, the the you could see that progression across the school and you also could see just how like you said a picture book can be used in year two and can be in year six but the quality yeah. the language the the imaginative detail that goes in as you go up through the school can can vary of course yeah definitely and what each child takes away from it is going to be different as well isn't it absolutely so yeah and so i was going to ask you this question then with picture books because like you say i think that sometimes particularly older year group teachers uh, worry about perhaps the amount of content or the amount of vocab that can be used from a picture book what would you say then is the 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 most important things or reasons why any year group should be using a picture book in their in their english well i think it's good but the, the language is so play, playful and poetic in a picture book and it can be done it can be done in a short period of time a child can read the start of the story and the end of the story in 20 minutes and then they've got they've got that knowledge of a story the story has started there's a middle there's an ending they they can see that and they can see how it ends so the children who you know novels can be <sighs> I love novels and I'll always read that alongside my English lessons, but the cognitive load is probably more than a picture book than a novel. And, you know, in the picture book, it's not too much for the children to remember. They're not having to, you know, there's a plot still and there's characters and there's language, but they don't have to remember as much. And I think that's quite important because they've, so already in 20 minutes, you've read a book that that child's got that knowledge of one story. And, you know, you might and at the end of the day spend five minutes, not even a part of your English unit, reading another picture book. Mm. So then already in that day, that child's read two stories. And I think they're quite good because they're short, they're snappy. Um, but then you can also, what I always do is read the first four pages and spend, you know, two or three lessons on reading skills so it won't be focusing on fluency, but it will be focusing on retrieval and inference and observational skills by looking at pictures or just a word. And I think you can break that down, but the child's already got quite a grasp on the story. Whereas if it's a novel, which I would do a novel stu study, you know, I'm not saying I'm not going to use it at all, but I think there's just a lot that can be done with a picture book quite quickly and a lot can be grasped quickly and they're playful and you know there's just so much you can do with them whereas with a novel it takes longer and you've got to explore it a little bit more which is fine but yeah that's why I prefer picture books I'm not saying I prefer them but that's that's why I'm all for picture books yeah and, and, and you're arguing that they should be used not only yeah. the only things that should be used, not only but not the only things yeah no definitely yeah. and I think you can use them for your reading lessons you know it's a small it's a short story however 
you know, one page can be used in a whole lesson that might be focusing on a picture, it might be focusing on a word, or it might be focusing on a very short paragraph, but you can spend a whole lesson just on one page in a picture book. And I think that's really nice. Mm -hmm. And I love how it just brings, you know, abstract context and things to life. It's just, yeah, I just love them. Yeah, and I, I love the first two arguments. Oh, the first, I say arguments. It's, it's like you're always trying yeah. to debate or argue something, and that's <laughs> not necessarily what I'm saying. But the, no. the two points you made about the knowledge of a storyline. I mean, obviously, with a novel, you've got to invest quite a lot yeah. of time to get that. A journey. lot of time. A lot of time. And I don't, in, in a writing lesson, like how much of the story can you get through in with a novel and I do think novels have their place absolutely but I think you can get you can get more out of a picture book quickly if that mm. makes sense and absolutely. they are beautiful yeah and like you the second one as well you mentioned about cognitive blow that you have with a with yeah. studying a novel if you want to try and create a piece of writing but then you're trying to cram in 100 150 pages yeah. of story no, exactly along with that you know it, it, it does draw away from that cognitive load of what you're trying to gain from the objective of that lesson if there's so much content to get through and i think if you are constantly focusing on novels it's actually you know i don't like to use the term lower ability but the children who struggle to listen to a story that is full of detail as much as a novel is i even went like i'm trying to read as many books this year um you know but as i'm reading it if I'm reading, if I'm not fully concentrating, and that's the same for children because they're not always concentrating. We can try as much as we want, and you know we can put lots of things in place. Um, and I know there's so much re research out there at the moment about making sure they're all concentrating at the same time and achieving the same thing, you know. But at the end of the day, if you're reading a story to children, a novel, you are going to lose some of them. You can't 100% have them all. That it's it's just never going to happen. I think there'll be some children who struggle with long pieces of text, whereas if they've got a picture book, it grips them from an image, they and they'll they'll grasp it quicker. I I know that. I know there's always going to be the odd few children that struggle to listen when you're reading a story, no matter how many accents you put on, mm -hmm. there will be. And I think picture books definitely grasp grab their attention more. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think those are some really good points. And in terms of, you know, picture books and uh, I, I'm aware that we need to move on in a moment, but in terms of uh, using picture books, you mentioned about how the various different ways you use them, whether it's focusing on yeah. the first four pages of the story or just a word or just a picture or just, you know, there's so many ways you can use them. It's very versatile. Uh, in terms of where you would go to find picture books that you want to use in the classroom where would you you know your top places be to go you mentioned simon smith already of course any other places yeah definitely simon smith's um and his website he's got so many for each year group and then there's the reader teacher who has lots um jane shares quite a few i always share picture books that i've bought and and i talk about how i've used them in the classroom so i i, I am always happy to share and i've shared lots of um resources on Tess or is it TS I don't know how you say it I never know how to say that but I've shared lots of work on there so I've done you know the tin forest in year two I've um, created um, a sequence of work on that and then I've got a few other people that I follow Kerry it always posts beautiful books um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head now but my favorite thing to do is basically go to Waterstones and just have a look any book I mean you do always it's hard isn't it because I I spend so much money on picture books but I wouldn't use all of them as um texts in a classroom so it's hard but Ashley Booth used to be great but I don't think he's on Twitter as much anymore but he used to share lots of beautiful picture books as well yeah um but Twitter's probably the best place to uh, if you want to enable <laughs> Yeah, no, like <laughs> absolutely, and I think, like you said, the, the the top answer by far. Whenever I've asked people about picture books or where do you go for picture books, is Twitter. You know, and so these yeah, these names sure. are great for people if they're not following already to go and get connected to and find out because they are out there. And like you say, if you don't have the time or money <laughs> to be exploring yeah. these books yourself, then get a good recommendation and just get that book and read it first, and then yeah. share it with your class. Uh, let's go on to the third of your primary three, uh, Danielle, which is all about 
whole class reading. So this links on quite nicely from the picture book aspect of things about whole class uh, reading. So why is that uh, so important to you in primary education? So I, I've always loved reading. So it's something that I want to kind of project onto my class. I want them to love reading as well. And I think originally when I started and, you know, I think everyone will probably say this is guided reading was, was the in thing. So everybody, there was like a carousel. And I think some school, schools do still use guided reading and that's great. Um, I've, I don't know if it's me and my, you know, my OCD, like I like to know what everyone's doing at the same time and like it to be structured. Whereas guided reading used to kind of be, you know, different activities like handwriting on one day, but it was never, I felt like I could never get the other activities to be meaningful. Yeah. It, it always kind of felt, I mean, and the, and the guided reading sessions were never long. So it was like 20 minutes, was it? 25 minutes. Um, but I, I could never get it to work for me. I couldn't get the other children to be doing something that was meaningful. It was only the children that were working with the teacher. Whereas now, as a school, we've been doing whole class reading since, um, I don't know if, did you ever see Mrs. P teach? Was it Mrs. P teach? She um, she introduced the RIC thing, the read, uh, retrieval interpret choice. Um, years ago so we introduced that as originally how we did implemented whole class reading and then we've kind of moved on to even more things now so we we look at the front cover of the book the blurb we explore things like that we ask questions you know we'll have a an actual English lesson just on the front cover of of a book and we'll learn the skills of what we need for a question and kind of they have that skill so already in that reading lesson they've asked questions and they've actually written questions and this was really useful in year two because when you're moderated that was something you're they, they look at whether they can write questions and we have inferences and lots of things not just reading it was not just decoding not just fluency it was it's lots of different things that come with it so interpret inference retrieval um, we have questions, choices, that kind of stuff. And I just think it's really nice. And then you can have an actual focus lesson that might just be on decoding or fluency. So not, yeah, it's just a whole class reading. We all do it. We all achieve. It's like a collective lesson. And I just, I just love it. I think it's one of the best, it's my favorite thing to teach whole class reading. And when I went to year one, I was a little bit, um, dubious on how I could actually achieve that and I think it it worked really well actually because we started with just like circle time on the carpet and we had the picture book and we asked questions and then at the end of the year we could we were able to decode we could read parts of the story ourselves out loud to the class we then asked questions we answered questions it's just it's really nice and it is nice to see that actually it is something that works all the way through the school and yeah just really like it so i presume then obviously with this uh, discussion on whole class reading and i think what you mentioned here about the the idea of guided reading carousels and often some of those activities were holding activities really for what was yeah definitely. In, in other groups um and i think that is the challenge and i suppose what and you made that very this very clear at the start of your explanation of it that you couldn't quite make it work for you that's not to say other people yeah. couldn't make it work no. absolutely fine um so i'm going to ask a couple of questions here about you know for you why um whole class reading works for you uh, and how you make it work for you so if any who, anyone who's listening is either doing it already or wants to get some ideas or if there's anyone who's listening and thinks i want to try it out and do it whole class then uh, they can take some ideas from this so i guess the first thing really would be when you go about a week let's say of whole class reading yeah what kind and you've mentioned a few of the activities you 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 would do already like looking at the front cover of the book discussing that together and those kind of things uh what types of activities would you be getting the children to do outside of the uh, of looking at the front cover what sorts of things through the week would you be asking the children to to have a go with so i would have you and usually at the start of um a writing unit i have around five lessons at the beginning and that's how we introduce the book to them and that's how we read the book so we we have you know the first lesson which is exploring the front cover 
and then asking questions. And then what I might do is it depends on the length of the text or the language used in the text, because I would could have um, I'd write write the um, part of the story up and I would get the children to read it with me. Um, I would read the first bit and then we would read it all together and then I would get children individually reading it. And that might be a that it kind of depends on what the skill you're teaching or focusing on. So it could be decoding and it could be fluency. So if we're looking at words we're not familiar with, then, you know, I would put in things in place. I would teach them phonics. You know, we'd look at how to break down the word and kind of read for meaning. It just, it all depends on what the learning objective is, but that kind of lesson is really nice at the beginning. And we do things called echo reading. I don't know if you've heard of that, which is really nice for key stage one, um, where you read a sentence and you kind of read it in the rhythm you would read out loud and the children echo it back to you and they pause for a full stop or, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm Northern, so my accent's very different to where the children I teach is, but I kind of make sure I mimic how they speak. And when you're asking a question, you go a little bit higher. So I model that and it's lots of modeling, modeling how to read, modeling how to say things, modeling how to, you know, if there's a word you're not familiar with, so teaching how to kind of overcome that. So if, if you don't know the word, I will, model that I don't know it. it's not something I know they've come across or you might ask the children but I show them how to carry on reading and kind of then come back and say well actually what do you think that could be then so it's kind of teaching them those skills which I think in guided reading those kind of lessons people just kind of assumed the children and I'm not saying everyone did but I think those kind of skills were forgotten to be taught and I think whole class reading actually is really good because the things that need to be taught are being taught now you know originally there were lots of lessons on comprehension questions and I've seen this come up this summer actually I think it was a big um someone from Ofsted said about reading um or some I can't remember who it was I don't know if you've seen it basically said about how he's worried that te- it's something to do with the SATS results actually um worried that teachers are just going to teach a certain skill to make sure they pass the SATS papers and I just I don't think that would happen actually I think we're now in an environment where lots of teachers are confident with whole class reading and how to teach reading that I don't think many are teaching to the test I think they're actually doing a love of reading they're promoting that love of reading and how to understand what they're reading I think people are worrying about it for no reason actually yeah, I, I will say that obviously a lot more people are, are are using those skills of looking at a text together. I think I think there are still some schools that are doing those types of things, teaching to the test yeah. and those kind of things. Yeah. That is the worry. Uh, but like you it's say, I think it's, it's trying to, to raise that awareness, I, I suppose, of not teaching a specific question style, but looking at the text and learning and, and reading and developing those skills together. So one of the questions I want to ask then, which is often something that is kind of, directed at whole class guided reading so you're mentioning about echo reading and getting the children to read together independently and things like that what would you do for a child um that um it struggles more than perhaps their classmates so obviously not a child that's struggling with a comprehension as such but being able to read the text themselves how would you uh, provision for that child in your whole class guided reading sessions so you would you know, you would scaffold their learning, the text would still be the same, because you want to give all children opportunity to access that high level text. And you want them all to achieve that learning objective. Otherwise, it's pointless. All the children need to have or be exposed to different texts and texts that are of high quality. And that's the whole point in whole class reading, you know, that the child that you're referring to could feel a little bit lost. But if they're not you know if they're not being able to see that text they'll never be able to you know identify that word they won't lots of people say and I've read lots of research about how you can't read a text if you haven't uh, you can't read a word if you haven't ever heard it and I think you're exposing everybody to the same text and they might not be able to achieve it they might not be able to read that independently but if you're putting things in place like echo reading that gives that child the opportunity to actually have a go 
at saying what's been read, if that makes sense. You know, it's really hard to make sure everybody can read, especially if you're using quite a high level text in year one. You know, there are some children who who leave year one, they still can't read and that's OK. But they've got this bank of knowledge from the reading lessons. They've learned the skills to apply and eventually, you know, they'll have embedded those skills and they will be able to read. It just might not be there and then in that lesson. But if you're providing the scaffold to the children, they can ac access the work, can't they? And I think that's and it's hard to do because every child's different. You know, you might have three children that can't quite read the text, whereas some children. I mean, I had this year I had a child who was able to read high level text from the beginning of year one. I've never known anything like it, but it doesn't mean that we should. I, it's really hard because I always want to make sure she's also being challenged. So I make sure the text is challenging for her, but I've got to make sure that everyone else can access it. And I think it's not about them being able to fluently read it themselves, but being exposed to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, because obviously it sounds like for you, the focus in your in your whole class reading sessions is yeah. teaching the skills, the, the, the modelling, the approach, and the ability to be able to look at the text and understand what's going on. Um, perhaps with those children that struggle to read, that there's going to be some extra intervention there on helping them. To yeah, no, you would have, them. yeah, you would have intervention, phonics intervention in place, and they might be the key children that you focus on during the phonics session. Because, I mean, we do whole class phonics lessons as well. I know there's lots of people that stream and set for that, but we have implemented essential letters and sounds and um that works really well but again that's high level text there are children that can't access that independently mm. but that we have to support during the lesson and i think that will always be the case but if they're not being exposed then they're always kind of they're not going to progress are they and i think yeah it's it's hard and but you have to you have to know the children but also you kind of have to trust the process that even though they can't read it right now, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't understand it. You've just got to put those things in place to help them achieve that learning objective there and then. Hmm. And I think, like you say, it depends on the child. It depends on their confidence. And you'll find ways to, to work with the child, perhaps reading the text beforehand with them, discussing it before them so they have a bit yeah. of confidence with that. And, it, and I guess it depends on, you know, what the situation is with that child before you know what you can exactly do. But it's, it's interesting. That's kind of like well, the way you explained it. I kind of liken it to maths and the sense of, you know, do we have children who are working below our year age expectations in which case do we give them different objectives to work to than the rest of the class in which case that means if they're trying to achieve let's say they're in year five and they're working at a year three level if we only focus on the year three objectives and don't have them working toward the year five but scaffold them to be able to work towards those yeah. then they're going to fall further and further behind because they're still working yeah, no, in the year three area i suppose is that the way you're trying to explain that yeah, no, definitely. And I think it depends on the skill anyway. So, for example, if you are focusing on retrieval questions or inference questions, you might have a child that can't decode just yet, mm. like a large piece of text. But if you're decoding for them and reading for them, then they can still actually answer those questions. Mm. They can, Some might be able to only be, be able to answer them verbally. Some um, can write them independently, but can't read the text themselves. And I think... It, it, you just if it depends on the skill you're focusing on but I think having a really good text for the children it exposes them to more I've got a child who really struggled to write sentences but she understood everything that was being read to her because we'd unpicked it all now she couldn't read it on her own but that doesn't mean she wasn't meeting the learning objective she could verbally answer those questions because she'd spent the whole year being exposed to new language and written which text to be honest so yeah that's fantastic that's some really interesting thoughts there about the whole class guided reading the whole class reading system and helping children to reach that and so now that's been really really useful thank you so much um let's uh let's move on to the next question then uh which thank you for those primary three some really interesting things there for teachers to dig into and think about uh how they move forward with these different areas for you uh danielle who would you recommend for a future interview on this podcast um, I think I would recommend Maria Khan. She has her 
journey has been incredible she's achieved so much um I think she's only been teaching two years more than me but she is so inspirational um she also loves classroom displays and you know the classroom environment and I just think she would be someone really great to talk to she's got lots and you know she's spoken at primary rocks and things like that so she would be someone good to come on fantastic that's great we'll add her to the list and try and get her on that's brilliant and finally for you Danielle what is the best thing about being in primary education I would say as cliche as it is I would say the children I I've struggled so much this year um, with home life you know and changing year groups was I didn't want to go to year one um, because it was now key stage one was never an area I wanted to be the children frightened me for some reason I don't know why but I absolutely adored them but going to year one was one of the best experiences of my life I absolutely adored those children they were so challenging in many different ways but I adored them and absolutely loved seeing them flourish throughout the year it was great um so I just I think it's the children I love them I mean kind of we all come into education for that don't we it's the other stuff that kind of gets us down but yeah no the children um and the little ones I absolutely adored them so the children (laughs) that's fantastic thank you so much for that Danielle thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us on primary education voices you are welcome thank you for having me Well, wasn't that fantastic? Danielle uh, was a great guest on this podcast. I was really interested to see her insights into uh, three of the, well, the three things that she referred to in her primary three, uh, because there were some fantastic things to consider there. First of all, with classroom environments, this is something that we haven't really discussed very much on the podcast so far in almost 60 episodes. And that is the impact that the classroom environment has on the learning and teaching in the classroom. Uh, And so I was very interested to get Danielle's thoughts on this, uh, particularly about classroom organisation, the colours we use in the classroom, uh, and obviously the big discussion we had about working walls as well. Working walls, as she mentioned, been quite a bit of a topic uh, in the last few days or so on the Edu Twitter world. Some people loving them, some people not liking them and preferring to have more... um, set walls with perhaps the information and key knowledge that the children need and of course you know as with everything both discussions and insights have different um, pros and cons to both of them and I think that the way that Danielle explains the way um, working walls work for her in her classroom was a really interesting approach to make sure that they are done with the children instead of before or after the learning takes place but in that process so that the children can see the big picture as that learning continues through that journey particularly in areas of English and maths but but perhaps of course uh, in different um, areas of the curriculum if you want to try and apply it to other areas as well Um, so I thought that that was interesting and that um, her ideas about what types of things could go on that working wall it was a really valuable discussion. So as she mentions, of course, uh, there is some areas on Twitter you can go to if you're interested in finding out more. Danielle herself, I'm sure, will be more than happy to talk about the use of working walls in your classroom, as well as Sophie Merrill, that she, who she mentioned, uh, who was a, a previous guest on this podcast just a couple of episodes ago, in fact. Uh, so uh, some a really good start there with her primary three of course then talking about picture books uh, I think that picture books or using picture books uh, in learning is probably one of the top uh, things that we've had uh, in terms of primary three topics on this podcast and so I wanted to go a bit deeper into Danielle's reasons behind picture books why picture books are so important she herself mentions that she is a uh, a picture book hoarder on her Twitter bio, and uh, you could she had some Twitter books to hand as we were in our discussion there on the on the podcast. Of course, you couldn't see them visually, but um, you know it just shows just how important picture books are uh, to um, Danielle and the way she approaches the teaching and learning in her classroom. But I think that the way that two of the two of the points, like I said in our discussion that she used, I was particularly impressed with. First of all, that using a picture book helps you to see the 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 progression of a storyline and helps the children to have further knowledge on how storylines can progress in a much more compact and uh, confined amount of space uh, than another than a novel would be able to and of course um 
as a cognitive load in a classroom, when you're thinking about the objectives you want to try and accomplish and making sure that you're not focusing on having too much content uh, to read, then picture books are a really good way of getting in a short space of time a complete story arc within one book without having to have too much reading uh, in that process. So, you know, a really interesting insight into why picture books for Danielle there. And then, of course, we talked about whole class reading, uh, which is something that has been discussed uh, over a number of years in various Twitter platform, uh, education platforms, including Twitter. Uh, but it is, again, a good uh, reminder to us about why whole class reading can work, um, how it may sometimes not work and what things we need to make sure we are doing in that um, whole class reading uh, approach to make sure it does work. Uh, and uh, to make sure that we have um, thought about other areas to make sure all learners in the classroom can access that reading as well. So overall, Danielle, a fantastic episode to add to our growing list of uh, fantastic educators. And thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. All that's left for me to say is that if there is a colleague uh, that you'd love to hear on the podcast, then please get in touch. Uh, You can uh, tweet uh, and DM or contact me on um, my personal Twitter. That's m at mroberts 90 matt or you can email um, contact me on at prime at prime edgy voices um, and let us know who you'd love to get uh, find out more about on the podcast uh, thanks for joining me to hear another primary education voice and see you again next time when we'll meet another inspirational educator